0: brave the cold. Man, it's cold. Thank you, God. To be here, and we are glad that you are. We are wrapping up a six-week series that we have called DNA. And the underlying premise of this series has been that because every living, breathing human on earth has their own unique DNA, our unique God-given blueprint of what we're going to look like and what we're going to act like. The same must be true of every church because the church is not an organization. It's a living, breathing organism made up of living, breathing, uniquely gifted people. And so we've been spending the previous five weeks talking about this, this idea that there are certain things that God has encoded into our spiritual DNA as a church, that makes us unique, not better or worse, just unique. And we're identifying, we're talking about those very things that make us who we are. Many months ago, the pastoral staff stepped away for an offsite where we spent some time strategizing, praying, and planning for the future. And we spent a lot of time trying to capture the heart The core values of Parkview. We looked back at the church that God has been establishing for more than half a century, and we looked ahead to the church that God was building for the next generation, and we tried to capture that movement of God into words. And after a couple of days, we crafted a statement. We want to lead people into a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ and impact our world through His grace. We want to be that as a church. And so we pushed back from that conversation and we said, okay, now what? That's a pretty good thing to be about, but how are we going to make those words a reality? How are we going to live those out each and every day? And so we came up with some core values, six of them. And we've tried to capture these things in some simple, easy-to-remember language, like people matter. People matter. Ridiculous generosity, everyday worship, better together, relevant teaching, and everybody does. Each of these phrases reflect a unique aspect of who we are as a church. Now, there's nothing earth-shattering about these statements. There's nothing revolutionary about any of these words. In fact, they are just really a rephrasing of what this church, this group of people, has historically been really, really good at. but we wanted to capture them and be able to articulate them and be able to intentionalize them. And we are working hard to bring these values to bear on everything that we do, every decision we make, every step that we take. We put them into repeatable phrases so that anyone who walks in the door could quickly understand who we are as a church. We also made them repeatable so that all who call Parkview home can embrace them And live them out seven days a week. These things are important because every one of them is rooted in Scripture. And every one of them is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, people matter because they matter to Jesus. We want to be ridiculously generous people because our generosity is a reflection of God's grace to the world. We want to be worshipers of Jesus every day and not just on Sundays because he died on a cross for us. And that message is worthy of praise. We are better together because we're designed to be in community. God wired us to be in need of each other. We teach the Bible in relevant ways because it is Scripture, when it comes alive in our hearts and in our minds, that we find our way to Jesus. All of them rooted in Jesus. And it's our desire to lead people into a transformational relationship with Him by doing these six things so that brings us to this last core value and I wish I could say that we saved this one for last on purpose but neither Ray or I are that creative and um, so but it falls in an incredible week because the last ten days of ministry at Parkview have been some of the most significant some of the most exhausting and some of the most complex in the history of this church let me tell you about the last ten days ten days Ten days ago, we gathered in this room for a night of worship and prayer. Several hundred people came to spend an hour, hour and a half in a close, intimate relationship with God. And then two days later, we had our annual daddy-daughter dance where nearly 300 people came to dance and to party in the name of Jesus. People from outside these walls and people from inside these walls coming together to make a memory with their daughters. And then two days after that, we had three services, over 1,000 people in them. And then two hours later, we had a celebration of life service for the Leone family, where more than 1,200 people came to support that family. Just to put that into perspective, this room holds just a little more than 500 people. And there were 1,200 people here spread out all over this building. And all through that, we had other family crises and hospital visits and after-school programs and Bible studies and life groups and classes. And just over the last five days, we've consolidated 60% of our ministry space into the remaining 40 so that we could start this massive construction project for the next generation of our church. And the reason that is relatable today is because none of that happens without this core value. None of that is possible without the literally hundreds of people that it takes each and every week to make that kind of ministry happen. It's because of that. It's because of the idea that everybody does that we're able to do those things and everybody does, is rooted in an understanding that the New Testament church was never about a service or a time slot or a location. It was about doing stuff. The New Testament church understood that Jesus died on the cross for them, rose from the dead, and left them with an awesome responsibility of bringing hope to the world. They were left with a huge job, but when they did that job together, incredible things happened. In fact, the world was changed because they came together and did. And so this morning, I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of ours. We would love for you to have it. But We're going to spend the rest of our time together in Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Verse 1 starts with a real pivotal word. So follow along as I read. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, there's a lot at work in this particular passage. But I want to back up and provide some context for what Paul, the author of Romans, is talking about. He's telling the story of the gospel. He spends the first 11 chapters of Romans painting this very vivid picture of all that God has done for you and for me by sending his son to die on a cross so that you and I could have eternal life. He paints this very vivid picture. And now in chapter 12, he turns a corner and we know that because he uses this word, therefore. And that word is, in, is there intentionally to wake us up and focus our attention and to remind us that something new and unique is about to happen. It's several points in Romans Paul uses this word. And each time he pivots just subtly. Well, Paul is saying that if you believe all I have said in the first 11 chapters, then, therefore, live your life like this. In fact, the rest of Romans is about how we should live our lives as a natural response to the gospel message. Because of the good news of Jesus Christ, we should therefore then live our life, how? And he paints this picture with the rest of the book of Romans. Look at what he says again. If you believe, if you understand the gospel message, then live your life, how? As a living sacrifice which is kind of an unusual thing to be said. I mean, the the hearers of the day would have understood the word sacrifice to mean the killing of an animal, to to the washing of your sins by the sacrificing of an animal. But Jesus came and made it a different way. He came and made a different sacrifice. So Paul is saying that the Christian life is something different than what has been led up to this point. Our life as Christians is no longer about trying to make ourselves right with God because Christ came and did that for us. But our lives should be a daily sacrifice, an offering to God. To live the Christian life means that we have to daily sacrifice the idea that we have the right, the authority to live as we choose. To live the Christian life means that you put to death the idea that you belong to yourself, You put to death the idea that you know what's best for you. You put your own agendas to death and you give them to God. That is what it is meant to live a life as a living sacrifice. Now hear me, this is not easy to hear, nor is it easy to teach. There has probably never been a culture on the face of the earth more opposed to this basic fundamental aspect of the Christian life than this idea of living a living sacrifice but the truth remains at the core of living the Christian life is this idea that we must die to ourselves that we must release control of our wants and our desires to God that is what it means to live a life that is a living sacrifice (laughs) And so this morning, I ask myself as I asked you, is that how you live your life? Hands off. God's in control. No ifs in your life. A number of years ago, many years ago, I was at a conference. And I distinctly heard God say to me, I want you to be a pastor. And I said, awesome. Awesome. As soon as I'm done with school, so I have something that I can fall back on, I will do just that. And so I went about my life, and God wrecked my life in very significant and powerful ways. And he said, there are not going to be any ifs in this journey. There's not, I will follow you if this happens. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt with all vulnerability and honesty that there hasn't been a moment where that has been perfect in my life. Every day, there's still that struggle for me to pull back control and live my life the way I think is right. We all sacrifice for something. Some of us sacrifice for that which is good and perfect. Some of us sacrifice for that which is ours. And let me just say to you this morning, if you're here and you're still kicking the tires of Christianity and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are here to listen and absorb. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you don't sacrifice for something because we all do. We all are sacrificing for something. But it is only God that is divinely perfect and infinitely loving. It is only God that has your best interest at mind. Everything else falls apart. Everything else breaks down. It is only God who is infinitely wise and infinitely loving. So Paul goes on in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What Paul is saying here is that if you understand the gospel, you will not think too highly of yourself, nor will you think too, uh, less of yourself. You will have a sober or accurate reflection of who you are because you will recognize that you have nothing apart from Jesus. That it was his sacrifice that gives you life. But you and I develop an understanding of our own value based on on what we do and what we accomplish and our failures. So we value ourselves differently. But in God's economy, he sees each of us as broken individuals, worthy of his love and his grace and his mercy. He sees us as adopted children. He chose us and loves us. That's how God sees us. And that's the accurate reflection of how you should see yourself not too high, not too low, but as one loved and cherished by God. I used to, I played football in school, and I know you look at me and say, well, that's obvious. Uh, I mean, that guy, he looks like an athlete, right? I did. I played football uh, for a while, and um I I quickly developed another sport. I was much better at men's volleyball. Um, What are you laughing at? It's a real sport. (laughs) I grew up in California. It's real. But I played football for a season. And to be perfectly clear, it was junior high and it was flag football, but it nonetheless (laughs) uh, was a real deal. My coach, his name was Mr. Wild. I kid you not, I could not make that up. I thought... I was pretty good. In fact, I went out for the team because I thought to myself, I'm going to be a pretty good football player. I'm smart. I can run kind of fast. I can catch a ball. I'm going to be good. In fact, I evaluated myself as kind of an A minus, B plus football player. And so I came to the squad pretty sure that I was going to help the squad in some way, be better. Junior high. And a couple of days into tryouts in camp. I'm there and I'm having, we're in drills and I'm having a conversation with one of my fellow athletes. And next thing I know, I had this huge bang in my head and I'm laying on the ground. And I get up all dazed and confused. And I realized that coach Wild had thrown the football at the side of my head and knocked me to the ground. And when I got up, he said, you're not here to talk. You're here to do what I tell you to do. And I thought, oh, man, I have severely overestimated my ability to play football. Because in junior high, I was not particularly good at listening to people tell me to do stuff and doing exactly that. But I realized something incredibly significant in that moment, which was that I had not, did not have a healthy understanding of who I was as an athlete. I overestimated my ability to play football. But what I realized in the middle of all that was that when a mediocre athlete steps onto a team and says goodbye to his or her own agenda, the team can excel. We all have a role to play. And what I realized in that season of life was that my mediocre contribution to the team, when done as a team, move the ball down the field. My football career did not last very long as I had a career-ending injury in my thumb and (laughs) decided that football was not for me. So look at where Paul takes this passage next. So we've had this understanding that if we believe in the gospel, we will live our lives as a living sacrifice. And when we do, we will see ourselves as God sees us, one who is loved and cherished by him. But what happens next in Romans chapter 12 is Paul makes the case that when we have those things fully embraced in our life, we are transformed. We are changed. We are made something different. We are made to be servants. When we release control of our lives to someone of greater authority, we become servants. So look at the next few verses. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, through many, form one body. And each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If you have the gift of prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now those are a lot of words. But in these four verses, Paul talks about what has been come to to known as spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are simply ways for us to be involved in ministry. It's for us ways to live our life as a living sacrifice in the context of ministry. It mentioned things like preaching and teaching and administration and leading and counseling and mercy. And I'm not going to take time this morning to unpack each of the spiritual gifts. But suffice it to say that this is not a comprehensive list, nor it is a list in any sort of priority order. It is simply an illustration that every one of us has a role to play, a position to play on the team. Now, I will tell you, I'm not an expert on spiritual gifts. But there are two things that I know about spiritual gifts that have rung true in my own life over the years. First is this. Every Christian has one. The Bible here in Romans chapter 12 says this phrase, to each of us, that's you, that's me. Each of us have been given a role to play. Each of us have been given a gift so what does that mean? It means that every Christian should be doing something with their gift in ministry. Everybody. There should be no one who professes to be a Christian who comes here on Sunday morning just to recharge the batteries and get fueled up to walk out these doors and live the life that they want to live. You should be asking yourself the question, how can I serve? Where can I do something? How can I use the things that God has uniquely wired me to do? Jesus himself said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Here's the reality of this point. You cannot call yourself a follower of Christ if you are simply here on this earth to be served and not to serve somebody. We are going to be a church where everybody does this. Everybody, you, me, everybody. We're going to do, and we're going to do things in the name of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and again, you're new to this whole idea, you're thinking, I don't know what it is I'm supposed to do, try something. Try something. And get involved somewhere. The second thing I know is that every Christian has a different one. We're all unique in the way in which we get to express those things. Paul illustrates that we all have different parts to play. He talks about the body having, a body having a head and feet and hands and eyes. And each one of us has a different role and function in the body of Christ. Each of us brings to the table certain life experiences, certain, certain skills, certain talents, certain passions. We all possess unique abilities. And as a result, that means that there are people in your midst, maybe in this room, maybe outside this room, who are waiting, who are there specifically to receive what it is that you have been uniquely wired to do or say. The opposite of that is this. Those people that God has placed in your path may never be reached unless you use your unique gifting, unless you do something. And so we want to be a church full of people who serve. Everybody does. We're hardwired to do it. We're hardwired to serve. So you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with everybody does? What does this have to do? Why is this series so significant? Well, here's the deal. None of these core values work unless we understand and embrace the concept of living as a sacrifice. None of it works. We cannot effectively care about people if we don't set, say no to our own agendas. We cannot be ridiculously generous if we don't let God be in control of our finances. We cannot be capable of doing life together if we don't sacrifice every day. None of our core values work without living a life of sacrifice. And so as I conclude this morning, everybody does means this, that we live our lives as a living sacrifice for others. Because when we do... When we see ourselves as one loved by God, gifted by God, we will begin to see God's design, his work in our life. You will see your position and you'll have the courage to play it well. Now I could stand here this morning and I could ask you to fill out a card, check a box and fill out something and be involved in some area, but that's not why I'm here this morning. I'm here to challenge us to be a church that recognizes that none of it is possible unless we live as a sacrifice. Now, I hope that you will. I hope that you will find your unique place to serve because we need you. Somebody needs you because you've been uniquely wired to minister to them. But that's for another day. Today, I want to leave you with the challenge of what it looks like, what it means to live a life of sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for again this morning and for your love for us. We thank you that you see us as a loved child. A child who's been adopted, who's been chosen by you. That no matter what has gone on in our past, you forgive us. And that you have chosen to use a group of wounded and broken people to bring hope to the world. And so God, as we allow that to sink in and see ourselves as you see us. Give us the strength and the courage to daily live as a sacrifice to you. That we would see the world around us and the lives that you place in our paths each and every day as opportunities to live out that gospel message. That we would be a church that does. Every one of us, every day. Father, we thank you for this day and for this morning. Thankful, again, for your love for us and the fact that you choose to use us. So remind us today, remind us tomorrow, remind us every single day of how you see us and give us the strength and the courage to live that out, that we would be a church that is remembered for what we do. We love you. We thank you again that you love us. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great week.